Hey, thank you very much. I hope that my mic is on. I hope you can hear me. Can you hear me? All right. Uh, it is a privilege to study God's Word, and I'm going to get into that. I know there's a lot of story, uh, stories about introductions and missionaries, and I'll give you a little bit of story of who I am. And stories are important. Uh, we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. We all have a testimony here. And uh, I know that if, as you've been studying God's Word and learning, as your series continues to go forth, you're only on the 92nd series of uh, following Jesus, and I hope it never ends for you, okay? And uh, I just want to testify before we get into the Bible study that following Jesus is worth it. Following Jesus is worth it. Can I get an amen? Amen, amen means I agree with it. I, I believe in that. That's good. So feel free to say that a little bit more when I'm teaching as well, okay? Um, but the, the real reason I want to say this is because uh, I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for Jesus. And I think that for most of us believers, we understand this. We have this language of, man, following Jesus is worth it. And a lot of people give a lot of credit uh, where credit is not even due. Uh, many people put their attention on me as the pastor, Daniel. But you all saw my family. Can we get a picture of that family again? And um, uh, this is my wife, Laura. We've been married for 14 years and uh, my son, Jeremiah, is 10. He loves Golden State Warriors. I know that you guys still miss, you know, Seahawks, or uh, Seattle uh, Supersonics, but he, he loves Kevin Durant and Steph Curry and is totally into basketball. And uh, my daughter, May, uh, she is eight years old. And when uh, we left, we grew up in, in Tacoma, outside of Tacoma, the hood. Uh, grew up there, went down to Olympia, was passing for seven years, and I took these little babies and my family, and we moved all the way and planted uh, Redemption Church Delray Beach, as you heard. Um, and it has been the most rewarding, grateful, hardest time of my life. You ever, you ever know what I'm talking about? Like some people talk about seasons, like there's ups and there's downs. I disagree in that completely, okay? Because there's the best of times and the worst of times all in one time. Sort of like a roller coaster, right? You got the best, you got the good, and you got the ugly going, ah! And so uh, we actually planted Redemption Church uh, Delray Beach. And so you can get more messages. You can get more of our story on that website and those type of things. And I know what you're thinking. Where in the world is Redemption Church Delray Beach? Delray Beach, that sounds so tropical. It is tropical. I had never heard of Delray Beach before we had moved there. Uh, this is where Delray Beach is. It's as far as you can get away from the Pacific Northwest and still speak the language. So we are missionaries. Literally, we didn't know a soul there. God told us to go to Delray Beach to start this work. And uh, we have just seen an incredible work happen. Um, we're a small fellowship uh, full of uh, people that are just lost, enjoying God's grace. Uh, most of the church, you know, Paul says that you have many teachers among you, but not many fathers. Many of the people in the church have uh, become saved in our church, have gone to church for the first time um, through this ministry. And it's just been so fun to be able to see Jesus work not only in my life, but in other people's lives. Uh, Delray Beach is the, a culture sort of like the Northwest. There's 2.2 million people in our county, and 96% uh, of them are unchurched. They don't go to church. And so there's a lot of people from the Northeast area um, that are just unchurched, don't know Jesus. And so you have to testify and you have to preach the gospel a lot. And many people, this is good news to them. This is, they've never heard of this before, this person of Jesus and how it fits into their everyday life of stuff. And it's just so incredible and encouraging. New York Times told um, Harold uh, Delray Beach as the recovery center of the world, uh, which means this, there are over 3,000 AA meetings going on per month in my city. 
So there is a lot of brokenness. There is a lot of pain. It's very affluent. So it's common to see Bentleys and Lamborghinis and more Mercedes-Benz than Hondas. But at the same time, there's a lot, of, a lot of poverty, a lot of need, and a lot of people that are just broken from sin. And praise God that God's grace is greater than our sin. Amen? And so we've just seen people get saved, get baptized. And I feel like in this work of four and a half years we've been going, we've planted around seven different churches. Because God just sends a group of 30, 40 core group people that don't know him. They all get saved. We disciple them for about six months. And then they just send off. And now they're all over the world. They're all over the Northeast. They're calling me, hey, you know, that whole Jesus thing. I'm going to this church now. I'm doing this thing. And it's just an incredible thing to be able to be a part of. And I'm so grateful. And I I try to tell this to you not to um, brag or not to tell you uh, all that we're doing, but to encourage you because I tell people this all the time. Um, I I hope it could be a tag on my life. There's nothing greater than you can do uh, than just to do what God's called you to do. And God has called us to do this thing, and you're not probably going to be called to Delray Beach, Florida. But if you are, I pray that you would come to our church and be a laborer, okay? Uh, But you know what? Many people in this room, they're called to be great-grandparents, moms, mechanics, nurses, doctors, uh, behind-the-scenes ministry. And praise God that we're all part of the body that we can do this thing together, that we actually have stories. And it's not just a cute little Bible study that we come with and just disperse and never see each other, but we can walk with life of King Jesus and understand his gospel and to minister not only, uh, you know, be ministered to here in Sunday morning, but, but to minister to one another throughout the week and in our communities and see God work. And so we're just privileged, we're blessed to be able to, uh, to do that. And I, I just want to encourage you, I don't know where you're at, but just thinking about that and singing those songs that you're good and we have a God of comfort, following Jesus is worth it. Following Jesus is worth it. And, and that's what I wanted to talk to you a little bit about today as we get into God's word. And so if you have a Bible, would you turn it to Colossians chapter 1? Colossians chapter 1, because it's a theme throughout scripture that we would follow Jesus and that worshiping him as king, as Lord, as God is worth it. And we're in desperate need to have Jesus be preeminent in our lives and worship him as king. And so I want to talk to you about the preeminence of Jesus, the preeminence of Jesus. Now, preeminence is not a word that we normally use, but let me just define it as you turn there. Uh, it's, it's a word preeminent means surpassing all others. It's very distinguished in some way. It's the fact of surpassing all others, our superiority. When we're talking about the preeminence of Jesus, we're talking about he's supreme. He surpasses all other things, all other people, all of the hopes and dreams that you can have. You can look to that in Jesus. And the Apostle Paul in Colossians, it's a small little letter, four chapters in the New Testament, sort of comes up with this slogan, this theme, that Jesus Christ, you are in need of this person, Christ. And he gives this case in chapter one. Chapter one before we get there, let me give you a little context of, this, of uh, just the chapter, because I always think it's helpful. We just recently um, taught through this book at our church, and um, I love being able to teach God's Word. And you know, We've only been around four years, and I've already gone, and we've taught, uh, I think, 15 books of the Bible. It's amazing how you just keep on going week after week after week. And Paul is writing to these peoples, the Church of Colossae, to enrich them, to nourish their souls. And let me give you uh, some context and wave illustration. It was, it was Charles Spurgeon who told this story. He told an event that took place in the glory days of Rome. You know, the Bible was written 2,000 years ago, and Rome was the superior government, and it was in the glory days of Rome. And during the severe famine in the North African colonies, Nero sent Roman Galileans to this stricken area. 
And when the starving people saw the ship on the horizon, they rejoiced greatly. And they said, oh, Caesar has sent his ships. They're on their way. There is hope for us. There is hope for us. But then Spurgeon recounted the tragic end of the story. For when the ships sailed into port, the North Africans discovered they were full of sawdust to lay on the floor for circuses. It's interesting because what they were hoping was for food, for substance, but Rome wanted to entertain them. Rome was exporting these colonies, circuses, and the people longed for food and got sawdust. They craved for substance, but they got a circus. And at the time of Colossians, when it was written, there was many false teachers that were giving sawdust to people. They had a longing, they had a hope. They needed something for their soul, but they were getting sawdust and they were getting different things besides Christ. It was good for entertainment, but it didn't cause people and their souls to thrive. And this is sort of where we find ourselves, not only in this book, but don't you sort of see that today in this world? People are coming to church. They're, they're longing for something and they're getting sawdust. They're not getting Jesus. And Paul is about to make this case that he is the only thing that satisfies, the, satisfies our souls. Listen, if churches or if any person is teaching anything other than Jesus and his gospel, it's like sawdust to your soul. It is good for entertainment, but there's no substance. And the theme of this book is that this book is all about Jesus who gives substance. Our life should be all about him. And so Paul is writing to enrich and nourish our souls and make the case that our life should be all about Christ. And so we pick up in chapter 1, verse 15. And uh, what I love always doing is reading the Bible, praying, asking God to do a work, and then studying together. Sound good? All right, will you stand with me? You guys stand when you read the word of God, right? So you have it on the screen, you have it in your Bibles. I'll just read from my Bible and they could follow me. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he, speaking of Jesus, is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in faith, in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you want to do a work in our hearts, that you want to enrich our souls Thank you, God, for your life, for your resurrection power, for your perfect love and your grace. God, we know that as we come here, we need you. We know that it's not good to just come and hear a cute little message and leave, Lord. We want your Holy Spirit to do a work in our hearts. And so we have to ask, God, continually that you would do that. Every day that you would be our substance, that you would be our bread, that we would just be uh, continually abiding in you. Jesus, I pray that you would use my words to minister, to speak, to encourage. 
Thank you, Spirit, that you're the teacher, that you point us to Jesus, that you're a good God and you love us. For some of us in this room, we may not feel that love. We may be discomforted and uncomfortable at this time. But we thank you for your presence, for there is pleasure at your right hand. And so be with us, Lord. Teach us, God. May we see more of your power in our lives. May we see more of your love in our lives. God, may we understand your grace and may we walk in it. And so we ask, Lord, for you to do a great work. We thank you again to be able to gather together and to have testimony. We do pray for the missionary work, not only uh, the person on stage here, but for all the work that this church is doing, how loving and generous they are. We pray, God, that you would be with the missionaries there that we can't physically see, but we pray for them now. We thank you, Lord, just for uh, Pastor Kevin and his heart to be able to be led by your spirit and how you're bringing uh, so many different things together to do a great work here. And so we just continue to rejoice in you, Lord. And we ask, Lord, now that you would speak to us. We ask in your powerful name, Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You could be seated. You could be seated. Well, the first thing that the Apostle Paul wants to tell us is not nothing new. It's something that has been said over and over again, but it's this. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. This has to be stated, and this is the case that he is making, that Jesus is God. If you look at verse 15, he starts off the section speaking of Jesus, and he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He goes on in verse 19 and says, For in him, speaking of Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul wants us to know right from the get-go that Jesus is God. And he uses this Greek word uh, uh, icon. It really translates image. It's these two ideas of likeness and manifestation. That if you look at Jesus, he is exact imprint or likeness like a coin of a picture or a reflection of a mirror. This is why when Jesus came on the scene in John chapter 14, verse 9, he said, listen, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And Paul is hearing God's words and he's hearing what Jesus taught and he's trying to understand and make this case and telling the people in Colossae that Jesus is God. But it also means manifestation. It's a likeness. It's like a picture, but it's also a manifestation of who God is. The sense that God is fully revealed in Jesus. This is why the Apostle John, in the beginning of his book, he said this, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is the Father at the Father's side, but Jesus has made him known. So when you look to Jesus, you can see God. And Paul wouldn't be the only writer. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says, He is the radiance, speaking of Jesus, of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the words of his power. Now, why is he saying this? At the time, there were false teachers. There were people that believed everything, okay? They believed in all sorts of gods. And they even acknowledged Jesus was a good prophet, a good teacher. He had some good stuff to say. But they would never think that God himself would come down from heaven and come with us, peasants, people, Gnostics. They thought matter was evil. They thought it was horrible. How can a good God or a great God, a powerful God, come and be like people, be an image, be an image bearer of his goodness and express that? And so they, they, they acknowledged who Jesus was in that culture, but they just thought he was a spiritual being, that, he, that matter was really evil. False teachers were placing Jesus as equal, uh, uh, placing him as other things besides God. There was this group, uh, asceticism, which they basically said, well, Jesus is spiritual, but you can obtain that spirituality yourself. You hear that a lot, right? We could be spiritual. We're all spiritual beings. 
And they acknowledged spiritual beings, but they said, well, Jesus is just a spiritual being that you could obtain. You could be God just like Jesus. And Paul is trying to make this case and understand this fact that you cannot be God. You are not God. This is who Jesus is, and this is who you are. And he wants us to understand this, that Jesus is God. He goes in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He explains this a little bit more, and he gives this warning to the church and to us today. He says, see to it that no one takes takes you captive, in verse 8, by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the element spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So all these false teachers acknowledge Jesus, but none of them place him as the first importance and as God. One commentator said in chapter 1, about chapter 1, many people today, like the false teachers of Colossae, will give Jesus Christ a place of eminence, of importance, but they will not give him the rightful place of preeminence, superiority. He is not a great man among great men. He is God's son, preeminent in all things. And in this first chapter, the apostle declares Christ preeminence in several areas of life. And so Paul is about to lay out some things for us that we can see God's power, his love, his grace, who actually he is. And he tells us that we shouldn't stray from Christ's teachings. What did Christ tell us? Well, there's a lot that Christ told us. This concept of being God is nothing new, and Jesus actually claimed to be God. Jesus claimed to be God. Uh, when God revealed himself to man, the beginning of the word of God, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, he used this word Yahweh, I am that I am, to Moses. He said, who is this, who is this being, this burning bush? And, and God revealed to him Moses. Well, Jesus came on the scene and said, you know, before there was I am, I am. I, I am Yahweh. I, I was there. In John chapter 8, verse 50, 58, Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And then people took up stones and they tried to throw it at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out to the temple, going through the midst of them, and so he passed. In John chapter 8, Jesus claimed that I am Yahweh, I am God. In John chapter 9, Jesus claimed, I am Yahweh, I am God. In John chapter 10, you know what Jesus claimed? I am God. I, I don't know, like, you, oh, you, oh, he's a good teacher. He never really said that, right? We misinterpret this, that whole, the whole Jesus thing. No, Jesus was crazy, man. He's going around telling people of God. And this is something not only that he claimed, okay, he proved it. And other people were not mistaken at the time. Okay, I know that there was no internet. There was no www right? There's no Facebook, but people interpreted what his teaching was, and they said, oh yeah, he's claiming to be God. If you look in the context, every time he claims to be God, people get upset at him because they say, no, you can't be God. You were a man like us. But he would say, I'm the exact imprint, the image, the glory, full of grace and truth. The Jews got so upset, this is why they killed Jesus on the cross, Right? This is history. We know that Jesus lived a life. He died. The reason why is because he taught something that was so profound, so crazy to the day. He claimed to be God. John chapter 10, verse 33. The Jews answered, saying to Jesus, For a good work we do not stone you, but blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. They clearly understood it. And like God, Jesus received worship at the time and actually encouraged people to worship him. His disciples thought Jesus was God. Peter actually said it, and, he, and, and Jesus actually encouraged him and said, oh, you've been, received a revelation from the Father. Good for you, Peter. In John chapter 20, Thomas, after Jesus rose again, he wasn't just a spiritual being. He touched the side and he said, my Lord and my God. 
The Apostle Peter would write later two books of the Bible. And in the very beginning, starting in verse 1 in chapter, or in First Peter and Second Peter, he gives this deity state that Jesus Christ is God. That we should worship him, that we should know him, that we should love him. The writer of John, the Apostle John says, in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Full of grace and full of truth. And now the apostle, what do you think he's teaching? The same truth that Jesus taught. That people understood and interpreted that Jesus is God. Colossians 2.9 says, For in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. But here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. He speaks and it comes true. Don't you wish that was always like you? Oh, I just wish I could just speak and it would come true. No, no. First Corinthians chapter four tells us the kingdom of God is not just of talk, but of power. He proved that he was God. See, because if you had any of your friends saying that you, they were God, you would just say, you were crazy. I don't want to be your friend anymore. Leave me alone. Or you would say, well, hook me up, homie. Pay all my bills for the next year. Right? You would say some type of thing like, are you a lunatic? Are you crazy? Or can you prove it? And you know what the resurrection does? It proves it. It, Jesus is alive. I don't think people understand how crazy this is. Every time the gospel is preached, it's not just the death. That is he died and he rose again. He is a living king. He is active. He did something that you and I could not do. And he actually talked about it. He said, oh, by the way, they're going to kill me in Jerusalem. They're going to do this. and They're going to do that. And you know what happened? It came true. This is actually fact. And Paul says, listen, verse 19, for in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell it was pleased to dwell because Jesus had no sin. He was perfect. Sin was brought in and death came because of sin. But see, death couldn't hold Jesus down because he was the perfect king of kings and lord of lords. He was Yahweh. He was God in flesh. He had no sin. And so he had to rise again. And this was the birth of the church, the message. When Peter, in the day of Acts, when the birth of uh, the church grew and he, the first message that he preached to 5,000 people and even more, people got saved. He said this in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. God raised him up, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Why? Because Jesus was perfect. There was no sin in him. The apostle Paul in the book of Romans gives this case that the resurrection proves that Jesus is God. It's not some lunatic or some good prophet or speaker that we follow. This is God himself wanting to reveal himself to you that Paul is making the case. In Romans chapter one, verse two and three, it says, Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection. He, he was declared to be the son of God, the Messiah, the king of kings, the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness. And it was by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In other words, the resurrection of Christ from the dead was monumental declaration that the sonship of Christ was found in Jesus. God declared him deity in the resurrection. God raised him from the dead as affirmation that he was the second member of the Trinity. That's why, you know, like churches, they make a big deal about Jesus, right? We make a big deal about Jesus. And I've even had people, as I, as I go out and, you know, our mission is to pursue and to proclaim Jesus. And we believe in a trinity, of course, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But, but in our day and age, we actually have to define who God is. Because, you know, the God, God could be in the chair. He could be in the light bulb. He, he, he could just, I am God. You are God. We are all God. No, the Bible says Jesus is God. So we just define it for people. We let them know. 
And we, we understand that Jesus is God. And so we make a big deal. And I've had people say, well, why do you make such a big deal about Jesus? And we just look at him and say, because Jesus is God. He, he's God. People don't understand this. They think that we just make it up. We don't make this up. This is foundational truth, gospel doctrine that we need to understand. This is why the gospel of Matthew says he is Emmanuel, God with us. And the people that reason why people ask these questions to us is because just like the Gnostics and the cynicism, they don't believe God is good, that he can come down and be like us. They don't understand that. And Paul wants to make a case that, no, there is a powerful God. There is a deity, but he's a loving God. There is grace. There is this hope. There is this message of truth. See, when I, when I look at Jesus, I can see God. I can go to the word of God and understand what God is like. Figure out his nature. I can study the life of Jesus Christ and for he alone reveals God in totality. He is the image of the invisible God. And so what I want you to understand and want you to know is when you leave this, this sanctuary, when you leave this building, you need to understand Jesus is God. You could say it with confidence. It's not some uh, teacher or some, some little interpretation. This is found based in the word of God. But let me warn you. Even though we know this doctrine, we stray, stray away from truth. Because although Jesus was perfect, we are not. And we actually try to be God ourselves. We make up our own ways. We have this thing of the flesh and struggle in our own sin. Uh, Warren Wiersbe said this about churches today in our hearts. The evangelistic churches are in danger of diluting the faith. In their loving attempt to understand and belief of others, Mysticism, legalism, Eastern religions, asceticism, and man-made philosophies are secretly creeping into churches. And listen, they are not dethroning Christ, or they are not denying Christ, but they are dethroning him. And they are robbing him of his rightful place of preeminence. Everyone's cool with Jesus. Like, that's good for you. No, that's not just good for me. That's good for the world and mankind. He's the savior of the world. He loves everyone, and he is God, and he, he has the right to say that. And you know what? People get offended by that, don't they? Why do you think people get offended by that title? Because if Jesus is God, guess what? You are not. And most of us, you know what we try to do? We try to run our lives like we are God, like we are Lord, like we know what we're doing. And Paul from the get-go is saying, listen, if you want to see the preeminence, how Jesus is superior and surrender to that and follow him in his grace and his love and his mercy of who he is, you need to understand this foundational truth that Jesus is God. And so submit to him. Make him preeminent. Follow him. Serve him. Love him. And Paul exalts Jesus in our minds and preaches us this beautiful passage of preeminence. And so look with me in the text. Just quickly three things. The preeminence of Christ. Paul wants you to see the power of Jesus. The power of Jesus. He's preeminent in creation. In verse 15 through 17. The firstborn of creation for by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authority, and all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul wants to make the case that Jesus is over creation because he is God. And he uses this word firstborn, which at first I know it's weird. It sort of sounds like Jesus was like created, right? Because I showed you a picture of my son, Jeremiah who's 10, May who is 8. Who is the firstborn child? My son, Jeremiah, right? He's the firstborn. He's older. But 
What you need to understand is firstborn in this context and back then, it didn't just mean order, but it meant rank. It wasn't just speaking of a time frame. It was speaking of the importance that Jesus is the firstborn, the heir, the one that is preeminent. For example, there are many cases in the word of God and in the Bible where the firstborn is not the one born first. I know it's confusing, right? But think about the nation of Israel. If you look at even their bloodline, look at Ishmael and Isaac. Who was born first? Ishmael, but who was the firstborn? Isaac. If you look at people like Esau or Jacob, Reuben or Joseph, Firstborn is simply meaning this is first of importance, the one heir. And so Paul is saying Jesus is the, the firstborn, the one of first importance. He is over all creation. He is the creator. It would be better to understand or interpretate this word that's basically saying all creation declares the glory of Jesus and his amazing character because he's over it because he made it. One commentary said, in, in no way does this title firstborn indicate that Jesus is less than God. In fact, the ancient rabbis called Yahweh himself firstborn of the world. Ancient rabbis used firstborn as a messianic title. As God said, as I made Jacob a firstborn, Exodus 4.22, so will I make King Messiah firstborn, Psalm 89.27. This was actually a messianic title that Christ would be over creation. And so Paul is wanting us to understand and point us that Jesus is powerful. He is the almighty, eternal God. And this is why he says in verse 16 and 17, in the same context, in the same breath, for he created all things and all things exist for him and all things hold him by him, hold together. Life wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for Jesus because he is the center of life. What you see right now, your eyeballs, how you're breathing, these things are all because of Jesus, because he is powerful, he is God. First memory verse I ever memorized. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. God created the heavens and the earth. And Paul is saying, do you not see that Jesus, he played that role? He is the firstborn, the preeminent one. And it would just be wise for us to just conclude and to state right now, if Jesus is God, we should submit to him. It's not wise in our own flesh to go against God. But yet we do. Romans 1.25 says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served creation rather than creator who is blessed forevermore. See, we need to have a right reckoning of Jesus as creator and not worship the creation, which is beautiful, but should actually point us to Jesus. As the Psalms would say, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaim his work. And I know that being in the Northwest, a lot of people worship, well, a lot of things. But one thing they worship is creation, isn't it? The mountains, the beauty. It's the granola state. God bless it. But you know, there's nothing wrong with seeing a beautiful sunrise or a sunset or the power. Like, you ever think about how in the world did a mountain get there? That should cause you to worship. That should cause you to say, wow, there is a God. Jesus, you were so powerful, you made everything. He is preeminent. He is firstborn over creation. And Paul goes on and says, because Jesus is God, he is also king over the church. He gives this grand big picture of the whole world, and then he starts hoeing in, and he says, listen, Jesus is not just powerful, he's loving. He's meek. 
He used his power to serve you and to birth a church, a people, to redeem them, to serve them. That's unusual because most people that are powerful that try to play God, you know what they do? They use that power to serve themselves. They're very selfish, but not Jesus. He is kind. He is good. He is loving. And so he says Jesus is preeminent of the church. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Paul is explaining the relationship Jesus should have in the church and in our lives. He's not only a God out there, but he can be a God in here, in your everyday life. He is the head. He is the head. You know, the head describes a source, a power. It's the mastermind, the leader, the ruler. Without a head, your body is dead, right? You can't do anything without your head, just like you can't do anything as a human being without Jesus. This is what Paul is saying. He's the head of the church. He birthed this thing. He's, he's the most important thing that you can worship. And 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says that when you put your trust in Christ, he is immediately, you are immediately baptized by the Holy Spirit into his family, into the body of Christ, into the church. We become spiritually alive when we put our faith in Jesus. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Meaning this, if Jesus didn't rise, we would have no hope. That's what the text goes on in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says that for without the resurrection of Christ, there is no other resurrection that matters. And so he is the one that we look to in the church and in our lives. It is so crazy to me to have a church that is not centered on Christ. That's actually blasphemy. That's horrid. That's awful. But yet it's out there that we wouldn't exalt Christ. And you know, in this little letter of Colossians, it's only four chapters. Paul says this word Christ, Messiah, Savior, 24 times. Because he wants you to know how incredible Jesus is. That he just doesn't use his power for his own glory, but he does that to serve people, to love people. And this is how he birthed the church. Questions come to mind when I think about this text is, what does this look like to have Jesus first place in your life? Right? We're in church. I pray that you put your faith in Jesus, but it's not just one simple prayer. It's a abiding. It's a steadfast faith. We continue to go. What, what does it look like to, to have Jesus in your life? To have Jesus the head of this church? How can we live for him as king and Lord and first place? You may say, well, why, why in the world would I do that? Well, because God became a man and did something that you and I couldn't do. He atoned for sin. Atonement means the reparation for a wrong or injury. It's the making of amends for a wrong that one has done. And you all know that you're about as bad as me, if not worse. <laughs> sinners. I mean, you know, I tell my church, well, the church is just a community of sinners saved by grace. It's not like we did anything special. It was there as a king that lovingly served us and used his power to atone our sin. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so we look to him, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And this is how he birthed the church. This is why he is the head, and he not only died, but he rose again. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. It says, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. And isn't that how John starts off his book when he says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and those that receive Jesus by faith, they become sons of God. 
See, most of us have this problem of making God Lord because we understand he is powerful. We understand we didn't make ourselves and orchestrate all that. But our, our really hard part is, is really God really good? Because I'm in discomfort, I'm in pain, there's evil, there's sin, there's all this heartache. Is he really loving? And you never have to question the love of God in your life, ever. Because 1 John 4.10 tells us this is the love of God. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us. And that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That propitiation means to appease the wrath of God. Paul would tell the church in Thessalonica, chapter 1, verse 10, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Full atonement. Completely satisfied. And this is how Jesus birthed the church. And Paul is saying, he's not only powerful out there, he's loving in here. He wants you to know him. He wants you to serve him. I love what Kevin DeYoung said. He said, it's, if we are too busy, or if we are busy in a hundred good things, even great things, gospel things, glorious things, but don't sit at the feet of Jesus, we are busy in the wrong things. Haven't you found yourself as a Christian being too, too busy in the wrong things? You get caught up, you get messed up with work or job. Or the, and Paul is trying to hone you in and say, would you focus? Would you understand that Jesus is king, that he is worth your attention? Isn't that what worship is? It's worth bringing something of value. He is preeminent, church. If he goes left, we have to go because he's the mastermind. He's the source. He's the bread of life. We should follow him. And finally, Paul says this. Jesus is preeminent in our salvation. He's not just powerful over the whole world or even in this big group of people, the church, right? There's many more churches that are doing great works all over the, the world and stuff. But guess what? He's preeminent in your life. In your life, there is grace for you. There is grace for you. It's not by our works that we're saved, but it's by his. And so Paul says, for in him, speaking of Jesus, verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, that sacrifice, that atonement. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless. Who presents us holy and blameless? He does. Because he knew no sin but became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And so now we can be holy in him, blameless and above reproach before him. Verse 23, if indeed we continue in faith, for it is impossible to please God without faith, being stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister to Paul is asking this question, what in the world can you add to the finished work of Christ? What can you do? What made you holy, blameless, above reproach? Nothing. You can't do anything. You have to trust and believe that he is preeminent over your salvation, that you were saved by grace and not works. And there is no helping Jesus' perfection. For on the cross he cried out to Telestai, it is finished. Jesus saves. He is Savior, Christ, 
Christ, Christ, anointed one, Messiah, look to him. You have a need. Look to the Christ. This is all what Paul is doing in Colossians. He would tell the church of Ephesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And see, many people think and act like they have to be good enough to be saved by God. But Paul is saying, no, it's not your works, it's your faith. Do you trust him? Well, no, 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 I I believe there is a God. He's powerful, he's great, that's good. Well, sure, he could be loving. No, but do you trust him? Have you received the grace of God? And are you walking that as a Christian? Because that has profound effects. Because if not, you know what you're gonna be doing? Is you're gonna be doing your own little work and trying to be your own mini savior. And you will fail. And there will be condemnation. Because you are not perfect. There is no one but God. But praise the Lord because there is no condemnation in Jesus. Because he is all loving and he's not some sissy. He knows how to prove things and is powerful. He's the almighty God in eternal existence. He can let you know and give you away and you can have a relationship with him. And so Paul's saying, no, 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 no. What can make you satisfied? What can, what can make you whole? What can make you complete? It's Jesus. It's putting him in a personal relationship, a preeminence of experiencing his grace. It's like that old hymn of Robert Lowry, Nothing But the Blood States. What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount that I know. It's nothing but the blood of Jesus. And for my pardon, this I see. For my cleansing, this I plead. For nothing can for atone. Not of good that I have done. It is nothing but the blood of Jesus. And this is all my hope. And this is all my peace. This is all my righteousness. And now by this I will overcome. And now by this I will reach my home. It is nothing but the blood of Jesus. So glory, glory, this I sing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And for all my praise, this I bring. It is nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is why we walk in freedom and exalt the King of Kings and make our lives about him because we've experienced his power and his love in a personal way through the grace of God in a relationship with him by our faith. We love because he first loved us. And so Jesus doesn't want you, Christian, to carry the weight of salvation. He wants to be preeminent in your life so much that you would trust him to be God in your life, that you would trust him to be completely satisfied in the work that he has done. Because when you start taking the reins and start putting your own effort and say, well, I got to do this, or he won't really like me because I let him down this week. No, 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 no. That's why we take communion. We are cleansed by the blood of the lamb, the sacrifice, the perfect life that he did. John, 1 John 1, 9 tells us this to Christians, that you come before God, you confess your sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive you of all your sins and unrighteousness. Christian, you don't have to live a perfect life being a Christian. It's not about morals. It's about a new person. And it's about the work that Jesus did in accepting that work for your life. And so you are either walking by faith or you are walking not by faith. And this is what the church needs to hear today, this message of the good news, the gospel, that Jesus is preeminent, that he is the good news, that because he did something so amazing, so great, that he would be mindful of us, making the whole entire world, but yet he would come and lovingly serve us and give us grace. And we could not and should not try to earn the favor of God for our works. And so Paul tells us, be pleased in Jesus. 
Make him preeminent in our lives. We um, began with Spurgeon and we'll end with Spurgeon. He said, I believe that if I should preach to you the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing else, twice, every Sabbath day, my ministry would not be unprofitable. Perhaps it might be more profitable than it already is. So what's the big deal about Jesus? He's God. Do you know him? Is he preeminent in your life? You know, the beautiful thing is you can make him today because you don't have to do anything for it. You can't do anything to get grace, but you can sure receive it. And Paul says you receive it by grace. And so may you trust in Jesus that he is sufficient. May you understand that he is so powerful that he made everything that you can see and know this whole earth. But he's so good and loving that he's the head of the church. And he came to save to give you grace, not just them, but you. And so maybe some of you have never turned to Jesus. You can have an opportunity today. We're going to respond and we're going to sing how Jesus is the king of glory, that it's all about him. And as the worship team comes on up and we sing and respond and just praise the name of Jesus. You know, the Bible says that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you could be saved. That he died and rose again for you. And it's a simple prayer. People have been saved by singing worship songs, by crying out to God. You could just simply say, man, Jesus, I choose to follow you. These, these people are really serious. Like they actually believe you are alive and you are king. And I, I need your help. I need your spirit to do this work. I want to turn from my sin. I want to turn from being my own God. I want to surrender to you and follow you. Forgive me, Lord. I, I ask that you come into my life. Make me spiritually alive. Fill me with your spirit. There's no magic formula, but there is a person that could do something in your heart and your life. And as Christians and as believers and as the church, every moment, every day, we should be abiding in Christ. For it's by that we bear fruit. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much, God, for who you are. We rejoice in the fact, Lord, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We rejoice in the fact, Lord, that there is grace for us right now in this moment. That, Lord, we can be walking with you for 30 years and get off track and we need to be reminded. I thank you, Lord, that your word reminds us that you wash us by your word, that there is freedom in your spirit and your spirit has inspired your word to point us to you, Lord. Lord, it's great to follow rules and to do the right thing, Lord, but the reason why we do this is because of love. Lord, we love because you first loved us. I pray for us, Lord, that we would be able to experience your love in a real way. Lord, that we would be able to have you king and see your power in our lives. For there are many promises that you've made in your word, God, to us that we want to walk and claim throughout this week. And so would you fill us with your spirit again, Lord? Would we abide in you today? Would we see that this life is precious, that it, you are worthy of our praise, that following you, Jesus, is worth it. Be honored and be glorified. We pray, Lord, for those in the room who are hearing this message, God, that they would turn to you, Lord. That in this moment of adoration and praise and prayer, that they would cry out to you and they would become children of God. That they would understand and know you, Lord. And so, God, whether it's for the first time or for the many times we turn to you, Lord, we ask that you would be the king in our hearts. Thank you for being worthy of our worship. We ask these things in your name, Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much for letting me preach the word of God to you.
Would you stand now and let us sing to Jesus? Amen. Mm -hmm.